netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. And today we get a chance to do that on the film, the latest film in the Alice in Wonderland franchise, Through the Looking Glass. Be sure to check out all of our other podcasts over at fxguide.com slash podcasts. Um, before we get into this podcast, which we're going to talk about the uh, the work that Sony Imageworks did on um, Alice, I wanted to talk about FX PhD, which we often do. But I just want to make sure everybody's aware of all the changes we've made over there at FX PhD, um, our training site. Um, we've moved from a term model, where there's four terms a year, um, to a monthly subscription fee, where it's basically all you can eat. And um, we've just added... Some new stuff to there. There's an art and science of green screen keen, which is a fantastic class. I've been starting that one up, looking at that one. It's um, going to be really helpful in terms of just, you know, explaining some of the technology behind keen and, and giving you insights into getting great keys. Um, and we've also unleashed um, a, a whole wealth of, um, since the beginning of FX PhD, Mike Seymour has produced a series called Background Fundamentals, and they've just been an amazing source of knowledge. And so now, as part of the package, we've unleashed a lot of these these previous background fundamentals into the mix. So you can go in there and check them out. And there's some really it, basically it's Mike's brain on display um, as Mike's been traveling through a journey of discovering different things within the industry, rendering and human faces and all that. So you'll see car paint. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there just from over the years. And I think you'll really enjoy if you haven't had those. And a lot of people haven't had a chance to see all the background fundamentals because they were part of each term. So it's a great way to go back and check out some of these things. And you'll see some pretty in-depth stuff that's really great. So check those out. Those are in the background fundamentals section. So check that all out over at fxphd.com. So today's film is Through the Looking Glass, directed by James Bobbin. Um, He's done Muppets Most Wanted and Flight of the Concords and a bunch of other stuff. I bring up his name because they mention it quite a bit during the during the podcast, but don't mention the last name much. So James Bobbin is the director, and the visual effects supervisors were Ken Ralston and Jay Red from Sony Imageworks, and Jay is joining us today on the podcast. And as you'll hear um, them talking about, you know, this this film, it's it's beautiful work, and it's. Um, you know, it's a it's a complicated film because you have the history of the last film, which has set a certain standard and style, and now you've got the new film, and you've got to adapt that and move it forward and add new things. So it's, a, it's an interesting discussion about how they did that and and some of the work, and it's um, I think you'll find it enjoyable. So, and as Mike describes it early on in the podcast, the the, the the a lot of the scenes just feel like paintings. I mean, it's such a it's kind of a neat opportunity for visual effects because kind of like Jungle Book, where you can kind of push it a little further, a little cartoony, but it's still got to be based in reality. And so it's kind of fun to hear Jay talk, um, talk about that. So let's jump into that right now and uh, join Mike Seymour with Jay Red. Uh, I do appreciate you taking the time to talk, so thank you. Of course, Mike, it's been quite a while. I think the last time I talked with you was maybe Men in Black. Was that right? I think so, maybe, yeah. I I think, yeah, I think it was like a good three years back. Probably well, around this time, three years ago, two and a half, three years ago. So. Well, I apologize for being so long between drinks. Oh, <laughs> well, I was working on a movie and I think you've been 
doing a lot in between then too. I'm <laughs> keeping a little bit of eye on you. You're always you're always up to something. So well, it's kind of you to say so. Hey, um, my wife described the movie as being like watching a series of uh, paintings. It was just a beautiful frame to look at, which was kind of interesting given the nature of the 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 film. Um, did yeah. it? Did it uh, come to you in terms of a, a sort of a very understood palette of how those various paintings were going to look? Or was there a lot of exploration at your end to define those looks? Well, I really, I really love that description. It's kind of the first time I've heard that. But you, I'm sure you know this. Oftentimes what we do in, you know, in the filmmaking process, especially films that are so either fully animated or mostly animated, is that we, we do look at the color palette over the course of the storytelling. And, you know, with some of the initial artwork, uh, working with Dan Henna, who was our production designer, and also taking some cues from the first film, there was a clear directive with James when we first started meeting with him about how he wanted to make this film feel like it was still grounded in the first one, but also have it look different and how to make those two things work. So the things we had going for us were, of course, familiar characters, a couple of familiar worlds and environments that we've been through before. But in this film, the palette did change a lot. And if you notice, it's much more colorful, much more saturated. Yes. Because we're really kind of going, because of the time travel element, that, that allowed us to explore these different kinds of paintings, kinds of looks. So when you really break the movie down, and this is something that we do often too, is that we look at environments, we look at sequences. And so you look at, for instance, like when Alice first comes into Wonderland or she goes to the mirror for the first time, for example. We're into this very, she comes from this very cold blue room in the, in the Ascot Manor where she's just come from this party and she walks through the looking glass and comes into that room that we term the backwards room. So she goes in this room that is cold and lifeless and somewhat abandoned into this warm room, but it's actually a mirror inverse of the previous room that we were just in. And that's a subtle thing that people may not pick up on, but it is called the backwards room but it's completely warm and inhabited. So now I suddenly realize, oh, she's in a totally different room. That takes us into a much warmer palette for the film. We fall to the sky, which goes with blue and pinks, and then we land in the kind of old white queen's ruins, um, which is full of lush colors, pinks, greens, very sad. And then we're into a much saturated world wonder of underland. So we look at those, and then when she gets to Time's Castle, of course, we're very dark blacks blues and using shadows right so that's to create the mystery and the tension and then you know the next thing we find is she's in the oceans of time and then she's in wit's end which again is back in color so that's a great way to describe it i've never we never think that you know specifically about it but if you were to look on the wall in my office for example of all this reference art and things that we would create you would certainly see a series of paintings and how that ebb and flow of color shadow and light is used to, to create tension or comedy or wistfulness or whimsy. Um, so it's an interesting description, but and certainly I think a lot of our artists, of course, come from, from fine art background and that's something, you know, that we tap into frequently is to have that, I guess that you could say a painterly look on some level. I mean, our best, our best lighters and best, you know, photography, comes from people who have an understanding of art and how do you make things look artistic and not just real. Because in some of those establishing shots... Yeah, some of those establishing shots, it goes beyond, I think, just um, like a color palette, which, uh, you know, is is obviously lush in many cases. But there's a compositional aspect of it, I think, that also um, 
I just, can you just sort of discuss that? Because like a lot of these things, the we don't discuss the blocking, the the actual makeup of the frame, and yet I was struck True. by the same thing. There was a lot of very neat, and by neat I mean well thought out compositional framing of these wide shots. Yeah, good. Thanks for pointing that out. I mean, that's certainly a lot of a lot that we did explore. You know, that's that's that comes from many different people too. It's interesting. It's not just one person's vision there because, you know. Ken has a background on the first film. I didn't work on the first film, but Ken and I have worked together on, on, on a few projects now, and so we have a little bit of a shorthand. Yep. There's also James' perspective. There's Dan Hennis' perspective as a production designer. There's Stuart Dryberg's perspective as a photographer. Um, and then we have our previous crew, which will contribute ideas. We have animators sometimes who might come up with a different shot that's valued in the boards to help tell the story better. But, you know, we wanted the big thing about Wonderland is that we wanted everything to feel as epic as possible, especially during the time travel sequences in the oceans of time. Um, those are heavily sculpted and heavily composed shots. We also have a number of shots where there's a lot of characters to consider in a scene. So, for example, the, the tea party scene. You know, you've got characters at two ends of a long table. You've got characters in between. And it's kind of how do you stack this up but also you don't want to fly the camera around the whole time and get the audience sick, right? So there's, but when we first shot it, we weren't moving the camera very much and the sequence felt a little bit slow pacing wise, but a lot of the composition was really cool. So sometimes what you do is you go back and you find, okay, we'll do a quick edit on set or something and say, well, it's feeling a little static. Why don't we pick up the camera and move it a little bit, but still stay true to this deep composition to make the world feel whimsical. We used a lot of wide angle lenses, you know, 21s and 24s to give a sense of a little bit of a comic sense before you pop into a close up. And, you know, this is something even back on the Men in Black movies that, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld was really big on. I know we're not talking about Men in Black, but it's still, it's a, it's a, comp to point out composition, yep. different kinds of lenses can really lend itself to the tension that's, that's put into a shot. So when you're if you're doing a close up with a wide angle lens, you uh, that person's nose may feel a little bit larger in frame, and the ears get tucked back just a little bit, and it takes some of the tension away from the scene. It adds a little bit of a comic element to it. Whereas if you're on a long lens and everything becomes compressed, now you can suddenly see everything, and it might feel like you're actually spying. You know, it might feel more subjective. So those those things are considered a lot. I mean, there are a lot of close ups in the film too. For me, I mean, it's that's a that's a taste thing it's a subjective thing you know um when we're traveling through oceans of time you go from this massive epic shot because we needed to tell a story of alice seeing all these different memories that are being presented to her these memories and moments that are being presented in presented in 200 foot waves like how do you convey to the audience that she's entering this massive space and yet keep the pacing going there's a very tight relationship between speed and the scale of things. I mean, honestly, I would, really I would have been mortified to be the goddess that was like given that brief and then, oh, by the way, we'd like the ocean from above and below at the same time. So if you could just make that work, that'd be great. Well, that was one of those things. It was funny because it's one of those things that we, the Ocean of Times went through a massive, you know, I mean, well, like everything in the movie, we, we, our design phase was, like from the beginning of the script to the end of our delivery of shots. I mean, it was some of the stuff was going on for a year, a year and a half. Oceans of Time had very, very varying looks before we really landed on what you see in the film. 
Um, we ended up going a little more literal with the ocean, of course, as you mentioned, the ceiling um, was something that kind of came only about halfway through that procedure. It used to feel like some of our early tests were, you know, memories were always a part of it. James wanted to make sure that these memories and moments, that's where, you know, that the oceans of time has everything in it, everything that's ever occurred in Wonderland would be in this oceans of time, which is how you time travel. And some of our initial tests were just this environment and the atmosphere, the universe was filled with images, but it didn't really have much structure, except then we started saying, wouldn't it be cool if there were kind of superstructures, maybe based on the way galaxies look or super you know, structures of galaxies in our own universe look. But it started to feel a little technical. It started to feel a little astronomical. And then we started playing with the idea of more kind of liquid-based things, since memory is that way. There's a nautical theme in the film as well, right? We open the movie with Alice on a big Absolutely, pirate ship. Yeah. Now, she's not a pirate ship. You know, she's yeah. on her ship being chased by pirates. So there's the nautical element to it. So that, that actually started to feed more of our design ideas, which is... It's funny you should okay, say she's that. Got because, this see, I thought that you were coming at it from a different point of view. Now, because I picked up on the fact that you had all these great word plays on um, time, right? Like, you know, obviously there's the, yeah. the Mad Hatter's Tea Party thing, he's got a hand on time or, you know, like the time is... But in this one, it was like that expression, oceans of time, right? And I was mm. just thinking, well, it's a literary source. They've cleverly just picked up on expressions in, in everyday life and then expressions we don't even think of as a like a metaphor and then just visualise the metaphor. But you didn't go yeah. there straight away, it didn't sound like then, what you were saying. No, we didn't. Well, the funny thing is, is that that idea doesn't exist in the books at all anyway. So time, time, the character is actually introduced into the script by James, James Baldwin, the director. Oh, no, I knew that, so, but I mean, it was like, obviously, the, the characters come from literature. And so um, sure. it just seemed like you were, you were using the English language as, as a sort of an inspirational source in a much more, let's see what some of these metaphors would look like that we've no longer even think of as metaphors any longer. Yeah, that's true. It, it's funny because I think, Mike, the whole thing we were trying to do is that we were trying to avoid any kind of time travel, time travel tropes that we've seen before, which is, you know, time tunnels or warps or wormholes or just, you know, disappearing yeah. gags or time lapses. Now, we're using some of those in different ways throughout the film, but we didn't want to establish a look that we'd all seen before. So the idea with the oceans of time, it, it is somewhat literal, but that's one of the reasons that we ended up flipping the ocean and putting another one on top so that it felt like it was an endless source of memory. No matter which direction you went, it was filled with memory, even though you could not go to the future. That was one of the things that was in the story. There's no future time travel in this film. It's all the past. Right. Which was a small distinction, but it's a thing that was really there. So that was for us like, well, how do we visualize that? What do we just make sure that there is a darkness, is it blackness? And we ended up going with kind of light in the future. It hadn't really been established. There's no substance there. So it was a tricky thing. I mean, it was a massive amount of, of preparation to prepare every single memory that's in each wave. And it's not just a projection. These waves are actually, these memories are actually volumetric. Did you see it in stereo perchance or did you see it oh, yeah. TV? Yeah, no, I saw it in stereo. He's not serious. So you can actually see kind of how deep things are. That was, yeah. you know, it, our, our 2D compositing team had a huge part in preparing all this stuff before our effects guys even got to it. So we got into this kind of funny time loop chicken and egg thing where we had to finish shots before we could put them in the oceans of time as moments that she was going to go back to or go toward, if that makes sense. 
There, yeah. there are things that she had just in, just encountered in the film previously, and you know, thirty seconds later, she's heading toward that moment, and so we got into a very kind of tight race in a, in a loop, in a way, <laughs> of having to finish shots there in film before we even got them into the oceans of time. It was kind of an interesting conundrum for a few months making that happen. So I was wondering yeah, if I could. No team effort. I was wondering if I could just, like, I was thinking about this when I was, knew I was going to be talking to you. And I thought, well, like, I mean, how am I going to talk to, to Joe about this? This is impossible, right? There's so much to talk about in this film. And then I thought, why don't I just not try and talk sure. about everything and, and see if we couldn't pick right. up a couple of things individually. And so if I can, I'm going to do three separate bits. And the first bit I'd like to do is this idea of blocking that we started with a minute ago. If we can just talk about that in terms of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, and then I'll, then I'll discuss the tech stuff on, on some other shots. But just because there's so much to cover and that you guys have created such a fantastic world. So let's discuss, we were talking yeah. briefly before about the blocking and, um, and framing. If you talk to the people that made Downton Abbey, they'd say one of the hardest things is the dining room sequences because <laughs> you've got a dining no, room table. I know. Those, those, those sequences are, are so good. Have you ever seen Gosford Park? Yeah, exactly. And, but here's what I thought was interesting. Your problem is not only that, that problem that they have in a classic drama of people around a dining room table and how do you sort of even frame that when they're on the opposite sides of the table and you can't move them. Um, but yeah. you have characters of different scale. So, you know, if I have an establishing shot, um, one of the characters basically is so small that you can't kind of see them unless you just happen yeah. to draw your eye to them. And what I found really interesting is that when I analysed those shots, you nearly made all of them what I would call in interview techniques dirty singles so for example yeah. there's almost no point where you would look at say hatter and you weren't you didn't have time shoulder in the corner you wouldn't look at time that you didn't have the cheshire cat on him or that in between the two of them there'd be the mouse it was just really interesting blocking because it was a very stacked up frame but i don't mean from a i don't think you're doing that from a stereo point of view i think you were doing it to kind of connect the characters weren't you absolutely no i mean i'm actually really happy that you're you you were analyzing it that way because most people aren't paying attention, which is good because you don't want to, but that was actually the entire purpose of it is to make sure that people knew where we were, um, in the scene, because the other issue that you had is that, you know, of course we're shooting this against blue screen, right? And of course we had some early production design, but we were building that environment as we were shooting. It wasn't done. And so one of the things is that a part of that, those dirty singles that you mentioned is exactly to keep those dots connected while we were figuring out exactly what that environment looked like in post. Because what we knew about the scene is that it had, it was taking place way before it ever became the endless tea party that you saw in Tim Burton's first film. So it was going to be lush. It was going to be green. The trees were going to be completely full and grown. Um, how big were the flowers going to be? Are they going to be big toadstools? There were things that we were all discussing, but we're still building in the environment, even while we were shooting. So that kind of blocking was vital. Um, we had, we had done some previews of this stuff already, but the other thing to consider, so we had, so we had a pretty decent map, but the other thing to consider is that when you get Sasha Baron Cohen and Johnny Depp on stage, things are going to happen. <laughs> Dialogue's going to change. Ad, ad libbing happened. Ad libbing happened, and it did. And so, I mean, there were times when Sasha and Johnny would would literally kind of ramble on and try to one up each other and come up with puns and stuff for twelve minutes, ten minute takes, eight minute takes. And you know, poor Andy, our editor, had to sift through a lot of this stuff to make things work. And but that's interesting because we could cut away to we could always get away to a character, which is good. I was going to say, how do you introduce the characters into that? Because if they're rap, if they're kind of like 
you know, playing off each other, which would be gold to stand there and watch. But then by the same token, you've got at least two or three other characters, depending on whether you count the Cheshire Cat, that are also able to interject into that conversation. Were, were voice actors there interjecting or was that all there done later? Yes, there were. I mean, yeah, we had some standby readers there. We had some voice actors there to, to insert dialogue. But to be completely honest, there a lot of that scene came together after a rough cut. Right. Meaning that, you know, all right, it's funny on its own, but we've got these amazing characters like Thackeray there's this great comic relief constantly because you could cut to him having a goofy reaction anytime you needed to, or a pun, or you could cut to, you know, to, to Maui as well, the mouse who could be defensive or whatnot. So we always had these abilities to cut away. And if you look at it, you can see that we used them frequently and James would use them to, to increase the comedy as a reaction from Sasha, let's say, or from Johnny. Um, so those were always there. A lot of that happened, you know, like Troy Salida, who's our animation director, um, we would do a rough cut. And instead of putting anything through, you know, match move or anything, it would just, Troy might do just a quick drawing in Photoshop and just give it to editorial. They could just cut with it. So you could just get a feeling for timing, you know, or you might draw three or four boards and throw them in there into the cut just quickly in the habit. It was a really fast way to visualize things instead of dealing with anything 3D because then there's not a lot of wasted time. Um, even though we encoded our camera a lot of times, it was just like, no, just quickly throw a drawing in there because we might do a blow-up on it or something. So, you know, the, that, that scene matured a lot over a few months, even from when we shot it. Um, and it's a tricky one because, yeah, like you said, the camera's not moving a lot because you can't because it becomes disorienting. When you see backgrounds flying all over the place, right? Yep. It's annoying. It's annoying. So it's a tricky thing because you want to keep energy there. You know, when I first saw a rough cut, I thought it was a little slow because everything was static. Right. But then you pick up the camera a couple times or you send Thackeray bounding down, you know, the table to pour tea for Sasha and then you bring him back. The bringing back part was different when we shot it. That only came and matured together when we ran editorial with some new boards. So, so. No one or another. So were you able to use those secondary, I'm not going to call them secondary characters. Well, I will, but let's face it, I'm not, I'm not trying can. to belittle them, but the smaller That's characters, okay. did you use the smaller characters to, to provide a reason for the camera to move? Because obviously you can sort of go with a character, they can motivate that camera move and then you've got the kind of ability, because yeah. they did jump around a little on the table. They did. They did jump around a little. Um, you know, Johnny, or sorry, the Hatter does lead time down to the other end of the table to have a seat and that split the whole scene because at first everyone was down on one side of the table right and as the scene matures uh hatter takes time back to the other side of the table and that's when it becomes more distant so then we start stacking shots here and there but yes those the animated characters were always the ones that we could cut cut away to to keep the camera going for humor definitely humor you know, animated little antics here and there and to get the camera moving back and forth if we needed to. Because then when time came back, you know, Thackeray was the first one to come over which led the camera back to that side of the table. Then Sasha got up again and moved to that side of the table and threatened him and then took off on his machine. So um, those characters are always tools. And it's, we shot, I shot so many plates for that scene like every chair, <laughs> we did a lot of coverage. We knew where Mally was sitting because we designed all the stuff before we shot anything. We're not just stupid and going out and shooting nothing. But we, so we knew basically where it was blocked, and we blocked it with the actors and everything for a couple of days. But we, I shot angles on all those 
So POVs from Johnny, POVs from Time, medium POVs from Time, close-ups, you name it. I did. I tiled the scene. I, had a, I shot a lot of stuff for that scene because we knew that it was going to need some help in animation. So that's well, how that scene came together. So if I can now shift gears and discuss some uh, more practical, technical aspects, um, I wanted to discuss uh, basically the face of the Hatter. And, and the reason I want to discuss that is a couple of things. Firstly, the, I mean, obviously a great performance by Johnny Depp, but it's a film over time. So you have at least yeah. uh, three, I might have been miscounting, but I, I know there are obviously three Hatters that we're seeing. We're, we're seeing this, the yeah. younger Hatter, which obviously seems to be like a, a younger actor, of course, but you're seeing Hatter from the Johnny Depp uh, performance in both the uh, time that he, well, the point at which he meets Alice and he is unaware who Alice is because they're at the market this would be the kind of That's true. medium kind of hatter. And then there's the hatter mm-hmm. at the table we've just discussed. Now, they seem to be wearing identical hats. Their hair at this point seems to be pretty identical. Actually, sorry, there is another. The fourth hatter is the hatter of the the one that's that's dying effectively um, when she yeah. uh, first gets to him. But if I can discuss yeah. that, like his face uh, required a, a bunch of things, not least of which it's probably an unusual place to start, but... We needed to see his eyes. It was the most critical thing. Yeah. And he's under a hat most of the darn time. Um, and I couldn't help but thinking that like, wow, this is like uh, just right out of the gate, not an easy thing to light effectively. And then you've got his actual features. Do you want to discuss that? Sure, absolutely. It's a, it was, and to be honest, um, it was a big challenge throughout the whole movie to deal with these, to, to deal with Johnny um, because of A, the time travel elements, different shooting environments, but also, you know, I mean, Johnny was, Johnny, he's six years older now, right? And yep. we also had, we also had uh, some additional photography reshoots to do a year later. And he was already doing another role, which he had put on some weight for. So we actually had to adjust a bunch of stuff to make it fit into the previous scenes. We had insert shots from a year previous, but he had been shooting another film that required a weight difference for him. So that was also another challenge. And what, what so were they inserted first, into? Which which scene were they inserted into? Like, what were you trying um, to match to? Even the opening, opening of the movie. Okay. Where she first encounters him in his house. Um, we had a year apart insert shots to deal with there. Okay. And so, I mean, for Johnny, for me, okay, so I wasn't a part of the first Alice, but the, even so, the first Alice was really established, his big eyes. That was yep. the main that was the main thing. So every single shot in the film, we have enlarged his eyes, tracked and enlarged his eyes. And sometimes once in a while you have to do a repair job, but it's, you know, it's, it's fairly straightforward with amazing tracking tools that we have and really talented artists who are able to kind of track stuff and follow things through. So that's the foundation. First of all, is every single shot has enlarged eyes and it gets a little tricky. Of course, when he goes through three quarter angles or turns away and comes back, there's a lot of stuff that has to be tweaked, you know, kind of in short sequences. So big eyes are the first thing. The second thing is to deal with shadows that may occur because of just naturally because it's just Johnny's six years older than he was. Um, it's dealing with the jawline. So makeup, if you've noticed, there's some subtle things in the film where, you know, when we first encounter Hatter in his house when he's a little bit sick and a little bit depressed, um, this is the thing that kind of came after the fact is that he was in full hatter makeup, meaning vibrant magenta underpaintings and the eyes and those sorts of things. Well, it came up later that we really wanted to see the studio producers wanted to see more of a transition for him. Like let's feel that he's something's a little bit more wrong with him now. 
So double negative, we, we worked with double negative. Amatrix didn't do the whole movie. Um, D-Neg did the pirate chase and did a lot of this opening shots with Johnny in makeup. Um, is pulling a little bit of color out of his face and a little color out of his hair. And a lot of people think, oh, well, Hatter's just this guy who's wearing makeup. But actually, his hair is colored differently than everyone's, and his face can actually change color a little bit. His eyes can change color a little bit, which is also something established in the first film. So what we needed to do is maintain a look in one sequence, desaturate the makeup a little bit more, so the more sickly and more depressed he becomes, the more color is taken out of him. Right? It's a, it may not be really aware, to, really obvious to everyone, but it is something that had to be tracked to the film. And of course, when he's in his, you know, his quote unquote deathbed scene, that's a radically different look for him. But what's tricky about this stuff is from a technical standpoint, Mike, is, is that our cameras are so detailed now. <laughs> we shot with the Sony F65s and the Alexa, you know, the, the uh, Area Alexa, like a lot of people are shooting with. But because there's so much detail now, we actually kind of have to dumb down we've got to take out marks from skins and skin. And we've got to, you can actually see that people are wearing makeup. So it's not just a movie. Most movies are going through some kind of beautification process now. And so we needed to actually smooth some areas out. And it's not because our makeup artists are bad. It's because the cameras are picking up everything. But and so every sequence has a little bit of, of work done to keep that consistent. But it felt to me now, again, I'm like, you know, not your average punter, I guess, in one sense, because most of your average punters aren't going to be talking to you. So I was paying attention. But yeah. in the... In well, the, you're smarter than everyone else. No, no. But in the, in the uh, market scene, I'm going to call it, which obviously then leads to the coronation yep. thing, but let's just call it the market because that's when he first meets her. It felt like his lips yep. were smaller and his nose was uh, adjusted in addition to the obvious stuff, which is that, you know, like his... Uh, that is all true. We, right. we, that is all true. We, we knew we need to make him look... We didn't know exactly how old he was. Maybe he was 18. Maybe he was 20. It was something like that. We knew we couldn't go that far. But we gathered a bunch of you know, images of what Johnny Depp looked like when he was a young, a young man, a young actor. And all this. So I'm looking at these photos. I'm kind of putting an array together. I'm looking at and comparing things and going, all right, well, what happens to us when we get older? Our nose changes, our jawline changes, our eyes can change, the way our forehead is exposed, etc. our hairline, all sorts of things. Now, he's wearing a wig, all those things, but the space of his forehead from like his wig or his hat to his eyes is, is a thing that we adjusted. The space between the bottom of the nose and the top lip, the filtrum, that's an area that we adjusted. His jawline is an area that we adjusted. Men's jaws tend to become a little wider as we get older, so we narrowed his jaw down. You picked up on his mouth as being a little bit smaller because our features get larger as we get older. And so to that youthful look is keeping his eyes big and getting the other features in his face just a little bit smaller, enough that you can feel it. It's very, very easy to go too far. It is. And yeah. when we're changing things. We're, talk, we're talking about a few percentage points. We're not talking about a 30% change here. Oh, no. I, I, I had you know, a it's a really for, subtle thing because it's it's so easy to make him look really strange, and there were shops that had to go through a number of iterations because it just felt wrong. I've had reason to talk and to makeup to artists. Yeah, I've had reason to talk to makeup artists who try and you know work with actresses without digital makeup requirements and a little bit of tape yeah. behind the ear to lift up the side of the cheek, <laughs> which you'd think would be impossible yeah. to tell, actually makes someone look younger. Yeah. 
um, which all I guess goes to the fact that we've got, you know, particularly sensitive parts of the brain that just process faces. So we're so sensitive to this. But, but let oh, me ask, incredibly sensitive, yeah. But it, it seemed like you're also doing something with shadow lines on what I'm going to call that uh, jaw area in that there was mm-hmm. a kind of a darkening um, to the left and the right of the mouth. Was that like a digital yeah. makeup enhancement or was that something on set? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, what happens with shadows, you know, is that some of these things can be, the features can come up and especially again, because this was a long time ago and, you know, Johnny needed to feel like he was much younger. Um, those shadows start to appear on the jowls and the corners of the mouth. And that's one of the things that adds age to people really quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's crow's feet, it's crow's feet in the eyes and it's wrinkles in the jowls and the lips. And that's an area that just, it's as soon as you start to smooth those things out and the neckline you know, just fat or thickness or whatever. Those are the things that add age immediately. So if we're able to smooth those things out, and it's, again, was tricky, a lot of paint work. Um, those kind of things really help reduce age. Now, the inverse of that quickly is that to add age when he was in his, you know, deathbed scene, and also incidentally with Time's character, the, the more broken down he became, right, yep. his skin, we actually added that. We emphasized those elements make him look older and more broken down. So those are the things that our, our eyes just pick up on immediately to, to take away or add age. So yes, neckline, jowls, corners of mouth, even eyes, shadows underneath the eyes. Um, Cause there's that magenta, that really strong magenta mm. painting underneath his eyes that um, could really contribute to him feeling skeletal or not. You, um, so, you have a great 3D work, department there. Done, you have a great 3D department there. Did yeah. you do any studies of a digital version of Johnny Depp's face? Because a lot of the stuff you're talking about is compositing and, uh, and sort of a yeah. – but obviously you're not doing a 3D face of him because it's the actor and I understand that. But did you do any studies using a 3D version of Johnny Depp's face to sort of see where things would change or what would happen? Well, we did a little bit. Of course, you know, we did – we had digital doubles of pretty much everyone on the film, um, including Johnny. But uh, we, we only ended up – I would say, you know, we ended up testing a couple times of like, maybe we'll do a 3D track on this and see if that would be a proper way to go through changing, maybe do a projection onto a different model of his face or something. But the problem with that is now you're interfering with his acting. We don't want to touch any of that. And that's actually one of the big challenges on this is that Johnny's so expressive. And whether you like it or not, the point is that he's got tons of control and subtlety over his his eyes. That's what makes him hatter. That's what makes him Johnny Depp. And then we didn't want to get in the way of that. The issue is, is the immediately when we started even touching his face with scale, et cetera, that's, it starts to influence what the subtleties are that come from his performance. So the study part of, we looked at his scans and we did our full you know, texture acquisitions, but it didn't really inform us much as to what we would do because we had to approach it from a 2D perspective. And then by the time the 3D conversion came around, that was all you know the standard conversion processes, which is... You, you're doing pretty sloppy projections onto models and stuff for the 3D purposes. At that point, we're not interfering with his acting. But all the 2D work, we had to be extremely de- delicate with to not hurt his performance. We went through many iterations on certain performances because his eyes, even just enlarging his eyes, would sometimes have an effect on did it, did it feel like he was scowling or smiling? Or was he surprised or was he angry? It would have, it would have some very strong repercussions just the smallest. So there was a lot of, we called it surgery, delicate surgery. Yeah. For this stuff. Obviously, I need to be sloppy. 
I've never met Johnny Depp in person, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a gap in his teeth. Can, can we just touch on that? <laughs> no. No, he doesn't. Yeah, that, that was established in the first film. Yeah. Um, you know, between you and me, it's pretty obvious that it's there. Um, it was definitely in the first film. There were a couple shots that had to be reduced a little bit because you could see this little prosthetic that was in there. Um, but but yeah, otherwise, it was a, a practical? It's, it's a choice. Oh, yeah, all of it. They were, they were little piece pieces. Right. Yep, not from, that was not, not added. That was a thing from him from the first film. Okay, so if I can just switch gears again now and just talk about super tech stuff, one of the really nice um, pieces of both environment work and effects animation was the decay from the past to the, I'm going to call it the present, um, and which you know had this kind of both um, stalactite, stalagmite kind of thing. It also had a, a rust feel to it. And I thought, well, there's another interesting yeah. challenge. Like how do you do um, a destroying of time without going to just dust and uh, post-apocalyptic kind of gray. And you guys I had this really nice kind of rusty yet powdery feel to it. Um, how was that done? Yeah, good. Yeah, long journey for that one too, of course, like everything else. Um, where do I start? Well, it actually originally started out as a concept of of ice. Maybe it was frozen over. That okay. was one of our, again, this is two and a half years ago, so yep. let's, start, let's start there. One of our first meetings with James is it was, we've got to show the world breaking down somehow, right? What are we going to do? Well, how do we suck the life out of everything, everything that was living, everything that was constructed, everything in the lab. It wasn't just trees and plants and creatures. It was everything. So the idea of ice was like, well, maybe we could explore that because it's got to feel like something he, James wanted it to be aggressive. He wanted it to be scary. There was some doubts from the studio about whether this was going to be scary enough. Um, and then, so we started doing some early tests, which is like growing crystals and covering everything with some kind of, you know, some kind of surface that was taking all the color away out of everything. Well, you know, three or four weeks into it, and then Frozen came out from Disney, the animated feature, right? Where everything, <laughs> there's ice growing everywhere. We scrapped that. So then I was thinking, I proposed, what about, we started looking, I started looking at photos of Pompeii or of uh, volcanic eruptions and villages and places literally covered in dust. It was, you know, they're very creepy and they're sad and they're, they're depressing. The problem with that is that, again, it's not very interesting to look at except maybe in a still frame. And it's just clouds of dust started to become a problem. It just wasn't the right idea. So then um, we got some pictures, started looking at a bunch of reference. And, Ken and I, this is what Ken and I were doing before we really even had a crew on. Um, and Dan was focusing on the rest of the movie. So this kind of came up, came to us about kind of how to fix this problem to Ken and I. So Ken and I go away and oftentimes we'll just come back the next morning and come back with a bunch of photos or something we found online or, or whatnot in magazines, et cetera. Um, we started looking at underwater photography and looking at coral growths and mineral growths on shipwrecks. And there's something really provocative about that because you could see these, you know, beautiful metal works now being covered with rust and, and white and corals and different plants. And you, you do get these kind of spiky growths of things because of the currents. Right of the ocean, really fascinating stuff. If you look at pictures of the Titanic, you can see all these things. Well, that led to more ideas. So, like, we went one morning. We went down to the Museum of Natural History in uh, Los Angeles, and we decided to go into the rock and mineral section, which is cool. And there's an amazing amount of stuff to look at there, full of you know things that people can't even imagine. And we stumbled upon this area that was full of obsidian 
which we had already started building Time's Castle out of obsidian, kind of this black, you know, reflective uh, material that was kind of cool. We knew we had to cover this castle in whatever it was going to be at some point because that world was going to get covered in this whatever it was. And then we we saw we saw some obsidian type crystals. And I can't quote you the names. Sorry, I can't be so scientific at the moment because it's been a while. They're in my record somewhere if you need them. But um, we saw some very kind of orange, rust-colored mineral growths over these crystals of obsidian. And it was I remember Ken and I were there, and we both looked at each other going, wow, that look at that. That is cool. It almost looked like day glow. It almost looked like fluorescent something, but it was all natural. Now, we knew it was going to be a little over the top, but then we started referring to it as rust. So I get on the phone with Joseph Pepper, who was going to be our effects lead and who was our effects lead, but he was finishing up another film at the time. Um, and I said, check your email, look at all these photos and have a think about it. And I talked to him. I was in, I think I may have actually been in England at that time for a scout and called him and said, check this out. We want to make, what if we covered everything in, in rust? We got to figure out how to do spikes. We got to, I don't need you to start thinking technically about how to do this and not have it look cheesy. We want to use, a liquid feel, it's got to be aggressive. We're going to have to art direct it. Animators are going to need to animate it. It's like a big thing, so start thinking. You know, he had a little bit of a freak out, but Joseph is super calm. After, he had a little freak out going, wow, this sounds like a big deal. But more, I kept sending him more images. And like a week or two later, um, I'd said, just do something crude. Take some of our old characters from Alice maybe a hallway from the castle or something, and just like texture bomb it. Just throw rust textures all over it. Let's just take a look at it. See if you can show me something in a week or two. So yeah, he came back to me within a couple of weeks and showed Ken and I this example. And it was really promising. That was crude. It literally was just covering every surface with a rust-like texture with patina, some different colors. You know, you'd see basic kind of red and rust, but you'd also get some other colors like greens and yellows and whites and grays. And it's starting to have a kind of an interesting feeling because it felt a little scary, but you could still see details in things. That was an important thing. We don't want to just cover everything and not have it be identifiable. You know, it needed to be clear. So that led to us going down this path of rust and spikes and stalactites and stalagmites and jagged edges. But we needed to control it basically everywhere. So maybe it inherits colors from architecture as it grows. It inherits shape from architecture. If you covered a character, you didn't want to completely lose the details of the face. Maybe the hair takes on a different look. What does a tree look like when it rusts over? Does it break under its own weight? You know, all these questions came up. Um, so it was a massive artistic undertaking and a technical undertaking and a rendering undertaking and a, you know, texturing and animation. So, it was a really difficult thing for Imageworks to do. It was one of the kind of hardest collective, like collaborative efforts between so many departments to, to pull this thing off. Um, I've been rambling here. I don't know if you want no, to. No, 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 it's totally great. I, because the thing, that's the thing I, I, I think is, you know, in this day and age, like it's not so much whether or not you can render it, it's getting to what you're rendering, right? I mean, this is the, yeah. the thing. Because it's not as if I mean, uh, most artists are going to say to you, look, there's only so many things we can do here, mate. So take your pick. It's more like, give me some direction and we can, we can explore that. Well, that is what's great about our, our team, and I'm so proud of them, is no one ever said, oh, we can't do that, or, well, no, 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 not, I don't know what you mean. Or it was, it was great because Ken or I, or both of us, could sit in a room with our, our leads 
and look at images and discuss and think about what it might feel like. We actually even looked at time-lapse photography of, of rust, of crystals growing, of all these things to influence us. Um, we work with Troy and his team a lot in, uh, in building tools for the animators you know, to be able to draw curves around in an environment which is where the rust and spikes would grow. So we could visualize all this stuff before we ever hit any render button at all. Um, it allowed James to really get in there and say, well, I'd really like a curve, you know, to wrap up around a column, or I'd really like it to see go over Chester cat. And maybe his mouth is the last thing that disappears, you know, and then our effects team would come up with some really cool ideas for covering large spaces like the castle, you know, being able to jump a surface. So it felt scary. Like it was attacking characters. Um, it was something that, I mean, that then our first tests had a, a kind of a crude look to them that ended up being part of the character, which is, it almost has a stop motion feel in some way. Cause mm, it was difficult yeah. to say, we want this to feel liquid, but we don't want it to feel like mud or like vomit or, I mean, I don't mean to be crude, but we don't want it to look like, you know, bodily functions. Cause it was, yeah. a, again, it's another one of these fine lines to where it's like, well, is I think that you... blood? Yeah, and I or think it succeeded because it had this powdery feel to it. Um, yeah, and right. that that yeah, that dry kind of dusty feel to it. Of course, you know, dust is something we associate with um, stillness and and uh, something being unused, and so thus That's caught right. in time. So that all I think kind of reinforced, as does rust, indicate you know forgotten in time. So I think all of those things thematically kind of worked for you. It's good, yeah. I mean, they're adding the addition of little clouds and little uh, specks and little pieces of rust breaking off things and motes in the air and those kind of things really added to the whole atmosphere because, and again, you totally hit on it, taking shininess away from everything really set it apart. Now, now again, making that stuff work in those environments was a little tricky because when you have bright orange rust going across super shiny obsidian material in the castle, you know, those are two different radical ideas. And so to get it to, to blend together, it took a lot of work between our live department and on our, of course, amazing compositors to get it to all fit together. There's a lot of 2D work on top of this really strong 3D stuff. At the risk of being a complete jerk and having you hang up on me, the only thing that bothered me slightly <laughs> was that yeah. after everything was frozen, uh, all the dust particles and stuff in the air still seemed to be moving. And I was like, how have they escaped yeah. the frozing of time? But I figured if you'd frozen everything, including the uh, air particles uh, or particles yeah. stuff in the air, you'd have uh, thought we were watching still frames and it had been dull. But um, Well, that was exactly, that's exactly why we kept it going um, is because it, it felt... It felt too static, and it felt like paintings, and it felt like still frames, even though they were fully rendered 3D environments. <laughs> um, and also in 3D, the best kind of 3D, in in my opinion, this is partly my opinion, but the best 3D is underwater photography. And the reason for that is there's always something moving through the atmosphere: plankton, pieces of dust, shrimp, yeah, krill, the particulate really helps. Whatever there is, it's the particulates in the atmosphere. You have automatic depth cueing. And it's just always there. It's like snow always looks amazing in 3D if it's shot or if it's rendered that way. So that is precisely why we left a little bit of atmosphere because it also tells you like there was an aftermath of something. And, yep. it, and when you see atmosphere and dust in the air, you kind of have a, there's an interesting kind of reverence. It's a subtle thing, but it means that something, you know, catastrophic has happened and this is what's left over. So it was a very art directed choice to have those modes in the dust there. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, completely, uh, completely works. There's only smart asses like me that uh, that come up with um, issues. <laughs> no, so. well, it's funny because you know, this is a subtle thing that a lot of people might not know, but we had to go through how to get the snow in Wits End to rust over and fall. Yeah, right? again, it's one of those things where it only happened in a few shots, but it was a thing we had to contend with. How do you see it enough? Because you're going from white snowflakes to these black little pellets that then freeze and then fall. So we had to play with these kind of cartoon physics to get it to be readable. Otherwise, you just don't pick up on this stuff. So, I mean, a lot of thought went into We like so, to be clever. So my last, my last thing I want to zero in on uh, is, I guess, the most obvious, but it's the one that's the trademark of the, of the genre or the films, which is... Um, Helena's queen, her large head. Um, we see even yeah. more of it this time in the development. It is the thing that yeah. is just startlingly um, both, like you kind of get used to it almost and then you have to kind of shake yourself <laughs> you out totally of it and go, and go yeah. oh my God, how on earth did they do that? I and wish I, I could show you, I wish I could show you the before and afters. I mean, we get used to it too, to be honest. And then sometimes you go back and you look at an original plate because you, you, know, you need to look at something for some reason and you look at her head and you go, why is her head so small? Oh yeah, it's actually, really I mean, I, funny. there is a couple of shots of her in B-roll that I have um, from the studio, and yeah, like she's walking yeah. around on set, and uh, in this particular <laughs> scene, she's walking around on set, and Hathaway has a, a a blue thing on her head for where I presume the crown will go, and there she is, just looking oh, yeah. normal and quite pretty, and I'm just stunned at like the okay, there's just <laughs> nothing there for you guys to work on. She's just no uh, in costume with a normal head, right. That is a, it, the Red Queen's head is a massive undertaking. Um, again, it's so much full of subtlety, but uh, yeah, Craig Wentworth, who is our DFX supervisor, one of two DFX supervisors, um, he's also kind of our 2D compositing supervisor, um, was also worked on the first Alice a little bit. So he, you know, knew a lot about, a lot about the technique. And the technique is that blue screen shots were a lot easier than, shots where we just filmed on set because it required a lot more paint out, yep. but really getting that, getting the neck to work along with the, with the collars, we worked with, with calling out pretty closely on coming up with something that gave us a little bit of help with some contrast in the collars, which allowed us to kind of cut things out a little bit so we could enlarge from the base of the neck upwards and the hair. So, you know, we didn't restrict anyone to what we could do, except we really asked Helena not to put her hand in front of her face. For example, that becomes a problem props in front of the face. Now we ended up with some of these in the movie. We, we just worked through it, but um, the red queen's head. Interesting thing about that is that there's not a set percentage. It's not like, okay, every shot, her head is 40% bigger. Right. That's just it. It doesn't really work. It really comes down to what is the lens? What's the distance to her from camera? What's her relationship to other other creatures or characters in the film? And so there's a range between her head is maybe 40% bigger and sometimes up to 65% bigger. And well, again, makeup work for her to be younger. We had to do a little bit of work there in those scenes along with Anne. There's just adjustments to jaw lines, adjustments to eyes. Um, I mean, you're being quite modest here because in that crown scene that I'm referring to, where we're, you know, it's the same uh, time period as the the market scene with Johnny, um, she's wearing a pink ruffled kind of costume against a skin-coloured oh, yeah. neck. 
in a room which yeah. has got lovely tonal values that are also about almost exactly the same as her skin color, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of other characters walking around her, interacting with her head, putting crowns on her, and she's oh, yeah. tilting her head down and glaring at the crowd and lifting her head up. Well, then I, w- I won't be modest. I'll say it was a big fat pain in the ass and it was really hard. Yeah, it looked like it was. You guys <laughs> earned your lunch that day. I mean, we had an we had an army of of painters and compositors that were meticulously going through and 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 cleaning up backgrounds and healing necks and eyelines and hair. You know, I mean, there's there are pieces of her wig that would have to be, you know, cut and paste out and tracked from five five frames here and then ten frames there as she's turning her head in front of a stained glass window. You know, you get burnout from behind her wig, but then when she's over the brick, it would look fine. Um, <laughs> passing in, passing in front of people. You know, when we first approached this, we thought, well, you know, for these red queen shots, we really just need to. We got to be over blue for all this stuff. The problem is, you got line producers coming back at you and actors coming back at you saying, "Well, I'm not available. I'm not available that week for your blue screen shoot. We got to find a way to do it on set." So we found a way to do it on set, which is a lot of really hard, meticulous work comes after the fact. Now you, you shoot the scene as you need to shoot it, and we'll we'll deal with it after. You've got and that's a because you're such amazing artist, technology yeah. now. You've got a two K delivery, right? But were you shooting that two K delivery? But we shot we shot everything with Red Queen of four K. Yeah, I was gonna say because you need it to blow it up, right? Without it looking like it's yeah. I did I did I did some tests early on. Um, we shot with F65s, we did Alexas, we shot Open Gate on the Alexa, which right. gave us almost 3K. But yep. most all the Red Queen stuff is shot 4K because, yeah, exactly, we needed to, uh, we needed to enlarge things that, that big. And, of course, and our eyes are looking movie, right at it, We right? get really close. Yeah, we're looking – like that's the exactly. whole point of the shot is to look at her head because yeah. that's where the performance is coming from and she's – That's right. And, she's and a, Helen is amazing. She's I was going to say, yeah. She's a, just so good as her character and yeah. so inhabited of who that character is. And again, we didn't want to get in the way of any subtlety. You know, we didn't want to remove anything. So we don't mess with her. We don't mess with her face. But um, there is an anecdotal piece. We had a set on that that day in the crowning ceremony um, where we lost air conditioning for hours, but we still had to shoot. And this is the Shepperton Studios. And the temperature went up to, I mean, American, you know, 95. So we wow. were out of, it was so bad. That poor Helena was, you know, we were all sweating, but she's wearing this makeup on top of everything. Yeah. Right. And so we're starting to, so some of her makeup is starting to bubble and peel a little bit and sweat is coming through the, you know, sweat is coming through the silicone on her forehead and all this stuff. So, but we can't stop because it's a five hour makeup job. So we're just, we're still just shooting and when Ken and I are looking at each other going, uh, okay, here's some more repair work. You know, and it's no one's fault. It's just, it was a mistake. It's a thing that happened that day, but it's something we had to contend with. So there's a lot of work done that you just don't, no one will ever know these invisible effects, but that, that came up on every production has some weird thing that happened. And that was something that happened to us that day, just from a temperature change on set, you know, is healing makeup. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that's even printable, but uh, that was a thing that really happened between you and I. <laughs> no, no, it's just, um, uh, it's just, just repair an, work. Because that's the thing, like visual effects is both obviously front of house in the sense that we are expecting to see the majesty of the animation and the, the marvel at the sort of environments, but also it is the safety net for, you know, fixing up those things that can't go right on set rather than blow out the budget yeah. and, you know, reshoot. 
Yeah, it's a, it's always been a balance, and I, and I feel like, I mean, I feel like productions are getting. I mean, from a filmmaker standpoint, because I, I like to consider myself one. If I'm a director, I don't want to have my hands tied. I want to plan. I don't want to be sloppy and ridiculous. I want to actually have things planned and have things run smoothly, but I don't want to necessarily have my hands tied. And I think that's one of the things we try to do is let a director, you know, just direct. And if there's a new idea on set, well then let's go for that as long as it doesn't kill us. And so we tried to have this movie where we shoot wild as possible, even though we know what we're shooting, you know, and it's not all about, Oh, we'll just fix it in post, throw it away, just kick the can down the street. That's not the point I'm making, but there's a fluid process that some people want to have. And the studio wants to have that sometimes too. So the danger is it's a blessing and a curse because it feels like, you know, we can do anything now given enough time and money, but that's not necessarily the way you should make a movie. And on a movie like Alice, it's tricky because we don't have, we're not making anything feel, how do I say this the right way? Um, It's not a real world. It's realistic it should feel tangible. It should feel integrated with live action. It should have a realistic quality to it. But the thing that attracts me about Wonderland is that it's not real. It's a place that you can't see in the real life, right? It's a place you get to go to. Um, as much as I love doing photoreal visual effects like rocket ships and, you know, buildings and explosions and all that kind of stuff, I'm creatively as an artist, I'm way more interested in surreal environments or unattainable places, things that you can't go. Um, and that's one of the things I like about the Wonderland world is that it's actually, in some ways, it's harder to make things um, feel real, but look different. So I sometimes call the movie like a live action cartoon. If that makes sense. Yep. I don't like to lean, I don't like to lean on the cartoon too far, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, there's, I mean, look how our characters move. Thackeray moves in unrealistic ways. But then you have grass that looks totally real or trees that look totally real. So there's a lot of design choices in this. What does an ocean of time look like that rusts over? I don't have any idea, but we did it. You know, I mean, going into it, we didn't know. Yeah, but sure. it's, again, it's one of those things that I don't know what that would look like in reality. And if that really happened, I don't know what it would look like that. But we made these creative decisions to, to have things look the way they look. And I think it's to make something feel that way. And for me, it's more of a challenge than just matching live action. Yeah. Because we, we've got renderers now that can be photorealistic and, you know, we can take all this onset photogrammetries and HDR images and like nail our live action stuff. But again, from an artist standpoint, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of artists love working on this movie is that it was something different. I get to feel a different world. Yeah, well, it's absolutely a different world. Uh, there's no question about that. Yeah. Um, but I'd just go further and say it's different worlds because uh, it does this, yes. this thing we started on. It's this idea of like different uh, different paintings that you're going into, and uh, they're not surreal yeah. in the in the surrealist uh, French sense, but they are these kind of surreal worlds of uh, different logic in different places, and each one of them does have a different. That's thing. true. Um, definitely, and definitely that. I guess that's the that's the art that goes with the craft of visual effects. Well, it's interesting, yes, because like you know, a detail to point out, which you probably picked up on, but Times Castle is a mix of Gothic and Art Nouveau and clockwork. You know, kind of what a strange combination is that? Like, how can we use Art Nouveau flourishes and elements to enhance a Gothic arch, for example? You know, it was an interesting mix, and our modelers loved it. It was really fun to be able to go through and say, 
you know, let's let's add a little triad here, but let's add a French curve and a, and a flower detail in the darkness, you know, just to add some detail to the panels. And then stonework on top of that. It's like, and, and it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, for example. <laughs> and yes. then, you know, cutting our technology off at Victorian era with a little bit of steam, right, is kind of an interesting challenge, too. Like, which end doesn't have any technology, really? Under that doesn't have any technology. Yeah, just the, pulling carts around. But there, but there's magic. Yeah, the back <laughs> so, of Steam's head, so, uh, Time's head alone was, uh, was a lovely bit of steampunk. No, it was really cool. And the, the whole piano roll and... Yeah. You know, there are whirring lights and stuff in there, which is a little anachronistic, but we needed something to, to feel kind of interesting without candle power. Yeah, so there's choices all along the way. And then, of course, the chronosphere floats. So you just start to say, well, there's Wonderlandian magic, and sometimes there is fairy dust from the White Queen here and there, but you still want to keep it grounded in some sort of tangible quality. And I think that was really the challenge, but uh, I have to hand it to our artists because, you know, we have over 350 people working on the show, and it was... Uh, all those different environments and those worlds and those paintings are just, it felt like every shot was its own shot. I was going to say that it must have been like an it. astonishing sort of actual count on the, on the uh, visual effects side because every shot must have been an effect shot apart from some of the... Uh, yeah, the, it's true. I mean, the Imageworks, ball did, oh, Imageworks did 1,700 shots. It was one of the big. I think it was the biggest show to go to Imageworks at the time. Or at the time, well, for us, it is the biggest show. And it's such varying quality, you know, DNEG did, you know, 400 shots, 400 plus shots. And then there's a bunch of different things that some other kind of smaller boutique houses did here and there for some smaller stuff, wire removals and matte paintings here and there. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a massive show. And so two and a half years later, 1700 shots later for us at Imageworks was just incredible um, and a huge variety. So it's definitely a challenging one. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. I hope that gave you enough. And if you've got any follow-up questions or whatnot, let me know. I, I will. But no, this has been terrific. Thank you. Yeah, good, Mike. And thanks for the good provocative questions. I appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I really um, found that interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the first film quite a bit in terms of the style. And I'm anxious to see this one. I haven't seen it yet, I must admit. I'm anxious to see this one just to see how they approached it and the look looks really beautiful to me on the on the trailers and the style i'm anxious to see it and so i hope you enjoyed that discussion um i wanted to mention our fx insider program uh, over the years people have asked us hey how do i help you guys out over at fx guide you know to, to keep doing what you're doing we love what you're doing and you know how can we help so we've set up the fx insider program and you can go to fxguide.com and click the fx insider tab we ask for a donation. We have some really cool beer mugs that you can get, uh, etched beer mugs, uh, as, a, as a reward, as a certain level. You know, our PBS pledge drive here. But, you know, it, it really does help us um, continue. We've got SIGGRAPH coming up, so there's a lot of expenses coming up. And, you know, we just try to keep the site lean with banner ads. And um, we don't really want to get in the business of selling banner ads too much. But you'll see that there's opportunities for companies. And we've had some companies respond. We really appreciate that to the uh, idea of um, sponsoring us through this FX Insider program. So check that out, and you get exclusive content um, and expanded articles if you do support us that way. And this is the FX Podcast. In addition to this, we do the VFX Show, which is uh, more of a review show for movies, visual effects artists sitting around discussing classic films as well as new releases. So check that out. And the RC Podcast kind of 
goes into digital cinematography and, and uh, production side stuff. And FX Guide TV, also our video podcast. So check those all out over at fxguide.com. And as I said, check out fxphd.com and see what the changes are we've made over there. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.